You can find out about that there. Leave your MasterCard and Visa. Um, what I want you to do, to do real quick is I want you to imagine uh, the most lighthearted, fun, inspiring sermon that you've ever imagined. This next sermon will be its opposite. Excited? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I have a couple of announcements for you. So announcement number one is Aroma Sports Camp. It's coming to Cornerstone June 10th through 14th. It's for kids 7 to 12, and it's led by Messiah College athletes. Basically, this is a sports camp that has expanded, gotten a lot of momentum kind of in the area. We wanted to open up a new vista for them. So if you've got kids that age or if you know people that are that age, find out more information about that at guest services. It's going to be great. It's going to be dynamic. Um, the other thing I want you to do real quick is I want you to look around at the, some of the empty seats that are around you. See those empty seats? Think about who next week you could invite. Okay, we've got a good series, which is talking about kind of reality. We talked about depression last week. We're going to talk about disillusionment this week. And so I think that, we, um, I think that we've got a message from, from God. I think we've got worship that's dynamic, uh, that could, could be significant in the transformation of people's lives that, that you know. So courageously invite somebody. Sound good? Okay. Let me pray. And if you'll just kind of enter into the prayer with me. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we come to you, Father. And some of us get disillusioned. Father, probably all of us sooner or later get disillusioned about things, but, but there are times in our mind and our heart we don't understand you, we don't understand what's going on, we don't understand ourselves. And so we would ask for your help, Father. Would you, would you lead us through the darkness? We pray all these things in your name, Christ. Amen. Okay, so we're going to be talking about disillusionment. And what I want you to do is I want you to think about things that you have been disillusioned by. And what do I mean by disillusioned by? I mean, you've got an expectation for this thing... And then you step into the reality of that thing, and they're not the same. For some people, it's the, it's the job. They're just like, I'm going to get hired for this job. This is going to be great until you meet that narcissistic, crazy, psycho boss, right? Or I'm going to get married, and again, there's that crazy, psycho Or I can't wait to have kids because they're so cute and they're so adorable. And I think I could survive on three hours of sleep for the next six or seven years. Okay? Now, here's my, here's my point. Whether it's joining the military, whether it is church, whether it is a charity that you help out with, Boy Scouts of America, you name it. There's this expectation for something, and then there's the reality of something, and then there's some choices you're going to have to make. Let me give you a couple of options on your choices. So, choice number one is, if the expectations and realities don't, don't come together, what I'm going to do is, I'm just going to, I'm going to exit. I'm just going to exit church. I'm going to exit God. I'm going to exit this job. I'm going to exit this spouse, this marriage. I'm, I'm just going to exit. That's... One option. 
Another option is stick your fingers in your ears and go blah, 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 blah. This is not happening. This is not happening. This is not happening. And you die a little bit every day in your job and in your marriage and in your relationship with God or church. So you've got denial, you've got exits. The other is you're going to have to maybe make some adjustments between the illusion of the way things could or should be and the reality of the way things are. There's a real old um, movie, uh, and the, the old version is the only good version, called Karate Kid. Anybody see the, the old good version? Yeah. And what happens is this kid is going to get mentored by this karate expert. I mean, how cool is that? And so he shows up at this karate expert's house, and the guy says, I want you to paint my fence, and I want you to wax the car. Well, I go take a nap or do whatever he did. And this kid is sitting there getting more and more ticked off and angry. I thought I was going to be taught by this karate expert and, and be able to go John Wick on my enemies. And no, this other thing has happened. Now, what could he have done? He could have done a couple of things. He could have just bailed. He could have just, he could have just left. He's got to hang in there a little bit in order for this to make sense. And what happens is this karate expert comes back and he's going to show him some karate moves and he's going he's to hit him and he says, you know, do the, do the, do the paint on. Do, do the wax thing. And he finds out that he's, he's built these muscles, he's built these instincts a little bit to be defensive. It's like, oh, really cool. Now I get it. The question is, are you going to hang in there long enough to get it with God? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I, I told you this would be a, a little bit of a sobering sermon. The scriptures are sobering, and I have to stick to the feel of the scriptures, otherwise I violate them. Have you ever gotten disillusioned with God? Let's say you grew up charismatic, and you speak in tongues, you get slain in the spirit, some of the neat things that happen in charismatic, but you get to the point where, I don't know if I believe in this speaking in tongues thing anymore, I don't know if I believe in this slain in the spirit thing. In fact, I'm coming in and I'm worshiping, and I don't feel anything anymore. Or maybe you grew up Catholic, and obviously some things in the news have been hard the last couple of years. So you get disillusioned with church and God. Maybe you get disillusioned with God and you go, hey, you know what? I, I, I dig Jesus. I think Jesus is cool. But when I read some things that God does in the Old Testament, I don't know if I want to hang with that God. I don't know if I like God's view on sexuality and the whole LGBTQ thing. I, maybe that's where I'm mad at God and I'm disillusioned with God. Maybe I take an introduction to philosophy class in college and they get me going. Or maybe I take a bunch of stuff about evolution. Or I read some stuff by famous atheists like Dawkins and Hawkins. And What am I thinking? Do I, do I bail on God? Have you ever thought about bailing on God? Do you ever have a war with God? Do you ever have a war with God when somebody gets buried, when cancer happens, when things don't go the way you had things planned? See, I don't know what's going on out in this audience right now. I, I'll tell you about something that happened, though, you know, three, 
three or so years back. It was the Sunday morning that we were going to announce to the church that my 15-year-old daughter Madison was pregnant. At the exact same time we were going to announce that my 15-year-old daughter Madison was pregnant, I knew a woman in the church who had gotten pregnant several times and always had miscarriages and had literally just had one. And I want you to imagine her that Sunday morning. Let me get this straight, God. I can't get pregnant. No, no, no. I can get pregnant, but I have to keep bearing them. And you won't let me have a kid, but, but this 15-year-old girl who wasn't expecting this, and this is going to make her, her life really difficult. We, we over here, we've got a home. We're waiting for our child, and can you feel that? You're not fair. You're not on the job. I can't trust you. Those feelings hit a good portion of Christians sooner or later. They're in the text. We'll talk about it in the, in the Bible today. And it's my job to kind of get you ready for that. Because one of the things that kind of happens in life is something, some, somebody violates you. Violates your expectations about the way things could or should be. And then you go, you look at them and you say, Why? And when we say why, we're looking for a causality, right? Like, you know, what were you thinking? What, 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 but that's the smokescreen. Why? We don't care about why. We just say why. What's really going on is not a question of causality. It's a question of character. This person who violated my expectations and my assumptions, can I trust them? When I entered into Christianity, what did I think was going to happen? When I entered into Christianity, I thought, I've kind of been at war against God. I've been pretty rebellious, sinful, whatever you want to call it. And I'm going to enter into God, God's way of doing things. And then what's going to happen is everything's going to be a lot better. Like my depression will probably go away. And... God will be fair and, and just and protect me and provide for me. And then reality hits. Part of the reality I should have known, but really church didn't do a great job. They, they always say God has a wonderful plan for your life. They don't always explain that the, the wonderful plan that God has for your life includes great difficulties. So when Jesus says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow follow me? That's doubt. When Jesus says to his followers, whatever they've done to me, they're going to do to you? These are not the sort of things that we, 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 we explain on the front end of being used car salesman evangelists, right? But it's in there. And sooner or later you have to f- wrestle with it. And if you don't wrestle with it, you just exit from faith. So we're going to talk about Job, and we're going to talk about how Job was disillusioned and how God walked him through some of that process. So in Job 1.8, it says this. It says, The Lord said to Satan, so God's up in heaven, he's having a, a conversation with Satan, Satan, and he says, Satan, dude, have you checked out my buddy Job? Have you considered my servant Job? For there's nobody like him on earth. He is a blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil kind of guy. 
Job is awesome. And what you don't know yet is Job is in, I'm functioning at my best mode. And when I'm functioning at my best and I'm the bright shining light, God gives me good stuff. My land increases, my family does well, my farm does well, all these things, it all comes together. I mean, follow Jesus because it all comes together, right? That's what's going on. And the big question kind of behind all of it is a little bit of this. Job has an assumption that he's loved, that he's protected, he's provided for by a fair and just God. Now, the question becomes, is that true? Is that false? Or is that just a small piece of the picture of who God is? Well, Satan steps into this moment in the next couple of verses, and he says this. Then Satan, Satan, answers the Lord, and he says this. Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a a hedge, a kind of protection around him and his house and all this stuff on every side? And you've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But... Put forth your hand now and touch all that he has and he will surely curse you to your face. Now there's a couple of things going on here. Satan, who we hear about in scripture all kinds of different places, he's He's the accuser, he's the destroyer, he's the liar. He, he says that he's, he's roaming around the earth seeking whom he may devour. But he's having a bet with God. Now, it's really tricky right here because right here you're going to want to look at Job and go, oh, I get it. Like Job's a story in the Bible and it's a case study that we can learn from. Actually, not really. Job is a mirror and you're going to see yourself walking this path. That's why it's there. And so you've got to gear up for that reality. So when Satan says, you know what Job is? Job's a dog. When you're in high school, Pavlov's dog, okay? What you do is you ring a bell, and then you give some food, and then eventually you can just ring the bell, and the dog will salivate even though there's no food. Basically, Satan says, you want to know why Job loves you and follows you? It's not because... It's not, a, it's not because he's deeply bought into all this. It's just because you feed him. You feed him good stuff. You feed him feelings when he's worshiping. You feed him a sense of release when he's confessing. You feed his family. You take care of everything. And then Satan says this, not about Job, but about me and about you. Remove some of that and ratchet up the pressure. And you'll find out just who Job really is. And notice the bet has got two sides to the coin. One is, the bet is, we only love God because we get nifty stuff. The other side of the bet is, God, you're not really loved. 
these people don't love you. They're just playing a little weird game of get the blessing. And that's what Satan puts into play. Now, he has to put it into play because, to be honest with you, we need to know the answer to this question for ourselves. Who are we really deep down inside? Who's God really like? What's life really like that's going on, especially when it doesn't meet our expectations? So what happens is basically God says to Satan, Satan, I'm going to let you off the leash a little bit. You can go put some pressure on Job. And so there's some things that go wrong with, in Job's life. You can read about it on, on your own. But here's Job's initial response. It says this in Job 1, 21 through 22. After some things had gone wrong, he says this. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I'm going to return. The Lord has given. The Lord has taken away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. And through all this, Job, at this juncture, did not sin, nor did he blame God. Now, what's this all about? Well, this is all about how much pressure is it going to take to reveal who we really are. See, it's not a question of, oh, I got in a, I got in a wreck, or I went bankrupt, or I lost a child, or you, you can maybe, maybe recover from some of those things and still trust God. But here's the deal. You throw enough things at somebody fast enough, and you compile them up so that it feels like a huge weight, then things crack open. And then you stand out in the backyard with tears flowing down your face going, I hate you, and I don't trust you, and I think you're incompetent, and if I could leave you, I would. And some people do. What's the book of Job about? Well, everybody wants to think that it's about suffering, and it, it is about suffering, but here's the, here's the trick. The, the, the trick is understanding that what Job thinks God is like and what life should be like is inaccurate. He believes, it's not so much a lie, but he doesn't believe the completeness of what God is and what God's doing. His not having a complete view of who God is and his majesty and wisdom and everything else makes him vulnerable to attack. And the attack does have an effect on him that we'll talk about here in a minute. You ready with the video? There are three books in the Bible known as the wisdom literature. Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. The first, Proverbs, showed us that God is wise and just. Yeah, we learned that God has ordered the world so that it's fair. The righteous are rewarded, the wicked are punished. In other words, you get what you deserve. But then we meet Ecclesiastes, who observes, well, people don't always get what they deserve. Uh, yeah, he said the world isn't always fair, that life is unpredictable and hard to comprehend, just like smoke. And this makes you wonder, okay, well... Is God wise and just? Exactly. And so it's that question that is being explored in the final book of wisdom, Job. All right, let's dive in. So Job begins with a strange story that takes place up in the heavens, which are described something like a heavenly command center. 
So God is there with these angelic creatures called the sons of God, and they're all there reporting for duty. And God points out this guy Job, his servant, showing how righteous and good he is. And then one of these angelic creatures approaches. He's referred to in Hebrew as the Satan. The Satan. Who is this? Well, this word is actually a title, which literally means the one who is opposed. So out of this whole crew, he is the one questioning how God is running the world. And he proposes that Job might not actually love God, that he's only a good person because God rewards him. If God were to take away all of the good things he gave to Job, then we would see his true colors. So he thinks Job is just working the system? That's exactly right. Maybe he's obeying just to get what he wants. So God agrees to this experiment and allows the Satan to inflict suffering on Job. And Job loses everyone and everything that he cares about. It is devastating. And remember, he deserves none of this. God himself said so. The remarkable thing is that in the midst of all this suffering, Job still praises God. At least for chapters 1 and 2. But then in chapter 3, we find out how he's really feeling inside. He unleashes this poem that reveals his devastation. It's a long, elaborate curse on the day that he was born. After this, some of Job's friends come to visit him to offer their help. And all of them are like, Job, you must have done something horribly wrong to deserve this. After all, we know God is just, and we know the world is ordered by God's justice and fairness, so you must be getting what you deserve. And for the next 34 chapters, the friends and Job go back and forth in very dense Hebrew poetry. His friends keep speculating about why God might have sent such suffering, and they even start making up lists of hypothetical sins that Job must have committed. But after each accusation, Job defends his innocence. And Job is innocent. He is. He's also on an emotional roller coaster. At some moments, he's very confident that God is still wise and just. Yeah, in other moments, he's doubting God's goodness. He even comes to accuse God of being reckless, unfair, and corrupt. So by the end of the dialogue, Job demands that God come and explain himself in person. And God does so. He comes in the form of a great storm cloud. Now, God doesn't give Job a direct answer. He doesn't tell Job about the conversation with the Satan. Yeah, he does something very different. He takes Job on a virtual tour of the universe. He shows Job how grand the world is. And he asks him if he's even capable of running it or understanding it just for a day. He shows Job how much detail there is in the world. Things that we might see every day, but really don't understand at all. But God does. He knows it all intimately. He pays attention to the beauty and operations of the universe in ways that we haven't even imagined and in places that we will never see. Then to conclude, God shows Job two wondrous beasts and brags about how great they are. Yeah, they are dangerous. I mean, they would kill you without even thinking about it. And God says they're not evil. They're actually a part of his good world. And then that's it. That's God's whole defense. It's kind of weird. I mean, what was this all about? It seems to be this. From Job's point of view, it looks like God is not just. But God's perspective is infinitely bigger. He's dynamically interacting with a whole universe of complexity when he makes decisions. And this is what God calls his wisdom. 
So Job asking God to defend himself is actually kind of absurd. He couldn't comprehend this kind of complexity even if he wanted to. So where does this leave us? Well, it leaves Job in a place of humility. He never learned why he suffered. And yet he's able to live in peace and in the fear of the Lord. But that's not where the book ends. Because after this, God restores to Job double everything he had lost. And this, again, is surprising. I mean, is this a reward? Is God saying, congratulations, Job, you passed this elaborate test? No. I mean, the whole book just made the point that Job losing everything was not a punishment. And so now getting it back isn't a reward. So why does he get it back? Well, apparently, God, in his wisdom, decided to give Job a gift. We don't know why. But what we do know is that Job is now the kind of person who, no matter what comes, good or bad, he can trust God's wisdom. Okay, back to our happy meal. Job 23, 8 through 9. As Job is struggling with all of this, add to it this. Behold, I go forward, and he's not there. And I go backward, but I can't perceive him. When he acts on the left, I, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I, I cannot see him. This is the time in the Christian walk where you read scripture and you're like, none of this makes sense. This is car stereo instructions in Korean. I worship, and I'm kind of afraid to actually say these words out loud because I don't know if I believe them. It's when you go pray, and it sounds like an echo chamber. And you're like, you already know how I think, you already know how I feel. Why do I keep saying these same stupid words over and over again? Now, what's going on is something that you probably don't appreciate as much as you possibly could. What's going on is you're being stripped of the connections that you're used to in order to find out the commitment of your character. Do I just love God because I get happy thoughts? Do I just love God because there's a, a purpose and a plan for my life? Do I just love God because sometimes things go right? Is that what this whole thing is? It's just a reward system. Or do I love God in a much more fierce, committed, dynamic way? You know how muscles are built? Muscles are built by you know, exhausting them, and they actually get to the point where they're, they're breaking down, and then they get rebuilt. Or how about tree roots? What happens with tree roots is a, a tree is sitting there and it's got lots of nutrients. Its, its roots only have to go so deep. If all the nutrients, all the good things are within reach, it, the tree could probably tip over pretty easily in the wind. It's not a strong tree yet. It might look really vital, but it's not really. It just appears that way. But here's what you do with the tree. If you remove the nutrients, guess what those roots have to do? They have to go digging in the dark to try to find something deeper. And what happens with us is, when you go through some of these experiences, if you don't exit, and if you don't just put your fingers in your ears and go blah, 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 
If you do engage and wrestle with God, what's going to happen is you're going to become a substantial person with deep roots. And you're going to find out about yourself that I'm not just connected to God because I'm his dog. I'm connected to God because of my character and my commitment. He's connected to me through Christ and his character and his commitment. And it's not about the toys that I get and the feelings that I've got. Not that those things aren't real and don't matter, but life is hard and you're going to need a lot more than that to hang in there. Job finally breaks in Job 23, 15 through 17. It says this, Therefore, I would be dismayed at his presence when I consider I am terrified of him. It is God who has made my heart faint and the Almighty who has dismayed me. And then look in the bottom because this is everything. But I am not silenced by the darkness nor deep gloom which covers me. Am I overwhelmed and and falling apart? Absolutely. Is everything darkness and I'm confused and overwhelmed? Absolutely. Do I think that he's unfair and unjust and unloving? Absolutely. But I'm going to hang on to him with everything that I've got. Interestingly, there's this time in the New Testament where Jesus says some hard stuff and then he talks to Peter and he says, Peter, are you going to leave like a whole bunch of people that just left me did? And Peter says, no, you're the only one. You're all I've got. Job hangs in there. And one of the most important things that I can say to you today is hang in there. Now, you might be thinking, so hang in there and then I'm going to get the blessing. Or hang in there, and then I'm going to get the answers. Hang in there, and it's all going to make sense. That is not what I'm saying at all. In fact, God's about to show up, and he's about to actually talk to Job. And the question becomes, when he finally talks to Job, what's it going to be like? Is he going to go, Job... Satan got got the tee off on you, but we found out some, you know, good things about how we're connected, and I'm going to bandage you up, and I'm going to wipe away every tear, and and I'm so sorry for what happened, because that's what I want to think is going to happen. That's what I want my Bible to say. Basically, what God says to Job is this, Job, you have teed off on me for the last 30 chapters. I think it's poetic justice that I tee off back. And the first words that he says in his address to Job is, Job, gird up your loins like a man, which basically means I'm about to say and do some tough stuff. Job 47 through 9, gird up your loins like a man. And Job, you've had a lot of questions, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play Captain Question for a little bit. I'm going to ask you, and then, and then Job, you can instruct me. Are you going to annul my judgment? Are you going to condemn me? That you, you can be justified in your perspective on things? Do you have an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Where is all this going? This is the movie Bruce Almighty, right? 
This is us saying to God, God, I don't like the way you do this, and I don't like the way you do this, and I think that you should do this, and I think that you should do that. I don't like the little coffins. I don't like cancer. I don't like people getting addicted. I don't like divorces. You just need to force your hand. You need to make all these things happen, or you're terrible and... And God shows up, and it's a lot longer than this section. Basically, God shows up and says, Job, I'm going to ask you some questions. Where were you? And then he lists. Where were you when I constructed black holes? Where were you when I created all the mathematical laws that kind of govern things? Where were you when I created genetics and cell encoding? Where were you when I created a a biosystem and put the earth just close enough to the sun to be warm and not so close that it incinerated itself? Where were you, Job, when I was doing that? If you notice, Job, you've got a great question, but you can't handle the answers. Your little mind, Job, would go... Because you don't have the capacity to understand who I am, what's going on, what I'm doing, where everything is. You have this very isolated perspective on things, predicated solely upon your pain, and you've decided to call me massively incompetent at running the universe, and you're not even competent to run your own life. Now, this is hard, because when you really feel arrogant and accusatory towards God, the last thing that you're in the mood for is to be told you're wrong, but I won't give you all the details, I won't answer the knickknacks of all of your questions. What I will tell you is you can't even handle the answers, and that is annoying. But Job's reaction is interesting. And maybe it gives us some insight to how we could react. Job's reaction in 42, 4 through 6 says this. I know that you can do all things. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I've declared that which I, I didn't understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I, I did not know. Hear now and speak. I, I will ask you, instruct me. I've heard of you by the hearing of the air, but, ear, but now I, with my eyes I see you. Therefore, I... I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. He basically says this. He basically says, I I teed off and I felt extraordinarily justified in it. But now that I have more information from you, I realize even if you wanted to answer the question, I can't handle it. There's no way I can understand everything that you're doing everywhere. That's not the way I'm designed. There's some things that he puts into play. He confesses both his ignorance and his arrogance. He brings repentance to the table. 
and he retracts what he had previously said. He brings humility. He continues to ask questions, but they're no longer in the form of an attack. He's teachable. And he's more open to experience God in ways he hadn't before. Notice that he says at the end, I I used to hear about you, but now I've seen. Basically, what he's saying is he's saying, look, previous to this exchange, I only had level two, and now I'm at level three. This is what the valley does. This is what wrestling with God does. It takes you from two to three, and then from three to four, and then four to five. And why does that matter? Because the stronger you get, the stronger you'll be for other people. And the stronger you get, the more breadcrumbs you can leave for other people. And the stronger you get, the more you can withstand so that when someone says, oh, you, you lost a puppy? Well, I, I lost a child. And you go, well, why, why do I have to carry this burden? Why do I have to be overwhelmed for the sake of, of other people? Because that's what it means to deny yourself and to pick up your cross and to follow me. That all of us in our suffering, it brings glory to God, it matures us, and it helps other people. We're a part of a much bigger thing than just ourselves. And some people at this juncture, they exit. I wanted good happy, go lucky stuff, and this is not it. Some people just go, la, 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 la. And they distrust God more and more and more, and they're exiting God in the inside, even though they may show up at church and go through the motions. But there's this third person. And they rip their clothes, they rip out their hair, they bleed, they cry, they swear, they wrestle with God, and then... They break their arrogance and their humility. And they submit themselves to someone that's wiser than we could ever imagine. He does love you. He does have a plan for your life. But there's a lot more going on as well. Our illusions about God are the fact that oftentimes we make it a cliché of happiness. It is a happiness and a depth of peace and hope and meaning, but that's not all it is. It's also character and it's kingdom and it's deep, big stuff. And I pray that when you go through the valleys, you hang in there and you learn from one another. I've been through plenty of valleys. Wouldn't wish them on my worst enemy. Wouldn't trade them in the world. They make me strong. Let me pray. Father God, we come before you. And sooner or later we know, Father, that we're going to be just like Job. And we're going to have some hard questions for you. And we're going to be tempted to bail on you. Or to ignore what we're feeling. And Father God, I would ask that you'd help us to be honest with you. To be authentic with you. And Father, help us to wrestle with you and stick it out with you. And at the end, Father, all I can do is pray for myself, but I'll, I'll ask if anybody in this room wants to follow me. Father God, I'm a tremendously arrogant and ignorant person. I don't know everything that you're doing. 
and I sometimes try to boss you around and tell you what to do, and that's just crazy. Would you forgive me? I repent, I retract, and I ask that you would restore. I pray all these things in the powerful name of Jesus the Christ and all God's people said.